This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, using health apps on your smartphone might not be as effective as you think. We don't know who best responds to an app. We don't know who gets better. In some cases, who gets worse, who doesn't respond, and who has perhaps side effects. The truth behind health apps when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. Once financially got cut from me, I was actually working three jobs. I was working about 72 hours a week. Why it's important to understand the financial aid process. Then... The idea of traditional masculinity is, to be honest, just a complete fabrication. The idea that men are supposed to be strong at all times is something that every man knows in his heart is not true. How do you view masculinity? These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. It's hard to imagine a world today without our smartphones. We use them to connect with loved ones, set reminders throughout the day, and now we can even use them to keep track of our health. All of these things are possible through mobile apps, but that might not always be a good thing. Everybody who has a smartphone generally is downloading apps. Um, Smartphones are almost ubiquitous in many countries, in Sweden, especially where I live, I think over like 90 Seven or eight percent of the population have them. And they offer both paradise and hell. I mean, all depending on how they're packaged and what content they have and what the purpose is and how they're designed to engage you and keep you engaged. That's Dr. Ann Berman, an associate professor of clinical psychology at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. She says one kind of app in particular that's on the rise is the Mobile Health app, or AmHealth. These apps can do a range of things, from helping users track behavior to connecting them with physicians. You've probably used one, or at least you know someone who has. Okay, they're popular, but are these apps actually working? They can be very helpful, or else they can also, especially when it comes to addictive behaviors, studies that have been done looking at, say, the alcohol apps on the market show that not small percentage of them encourage people to drink more rather than reducing. The drinking. So they have a huge role to play, but I think that institutions, government institutions or healthcare institutions or universities or clinics or healthcare organizations are beginning to understand that people need some guidance on how to use them and which ones might be helpful. And it's not so easy to generate this kind of guidance. So how did this trend start? Mark Fisher is the co-founder and CEO of Dogtown Media, a mobile app development company. He says the mobile app revolution has allowed developers to enter the healthcare industry in an interesting way. In the digital health space, there's never been a better time to get involved. It is one of the areas that has the greatest amount of social impact. You can take an idea and bring it to life and change tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of lives and do it from your garage in some cases. 
it's really a neat thing to be able to create and create solutions to problems that you might see in your life or in the lives of your family or friends. Having access to so much data has made the connection between professional healthcare and mobile health apps obvious for some. Cell phones have been around for decades, but the app really leapfrogged the utility of phones to allow us to have very immersive experiences, to integrate apps into our lives, and to have data shared to the cloud in a way where Anywhere and everywhere you go, you have value at your fingertips. One of the front runners in the digital health space is Sean Lewis, a professor of adult psychiatry at the University of Manchester. Back in 2008, it was all new, and I think the app we developed, which is called ClinTouch, is really for people with more serious mental health problems. That was the world's first mental health app. And of course, back then, we had no idea really how to go about developing it in a clinical context. Would it help people with mental health problems? How did we do that? Since then, mHealth apps have exploded. And it's not just apps for mental health that fall into this broad category. It's physical health as well. Michael Kleinrock, research director of the IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science, says he uses mHealth apps for exercise. I'm a cyclist. We're doing a charity bike ride this coming weekend, and the entire group of people that I ride with at our local bike shop are all tracking their bike rides on a specific app. And so we can then see who did well on which hills and who's doing better in terms of speed or distance. And that social feedback provides so much value for people that they enjoy that connection. And so I think the short answer is that people have a worry or a concern about their fitness or about some aspect that they're trying to track, but they also have a positive connection maybe to share it with other people. According to HealthWorks Collective, more than a half of smartphones are used to gather health-associated information. Collecting and storing information on your phone may be easier now than ever, but the effectiveness of some mHealth apps, particularly for mental health, is kind of a gray area. We don't know who best responds to an app. We don't know who gets better. In some cases, who gets worse, who doesn't respond, and who has perhaps side effects. And I think because certainly mental health conditions are so varied and people experience them differently, we're learning it's really hard to predict who will respond. And I've had cases where patients I work with have found self-health apps and found them to be really useful and found that it gave them extra support. I've had some people who want to use apps to safety net if they didn't feel well, if they felt at risk, if they felt that they were going to kind of relapse on alcohol, they could easily reach out to someone or get a reminder of why they're staying sober. And some people just wanted to learn new skills. They wanted to learn a certain therapy skill and kind of practice it during the week and kind of reinforce it in real life. So it's interesting because different people seem to be looking for different things in apps getting different things out. That's Dr. John Torres, a psychiatrist and director of digital psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He says mHealth apps have some shortcomings that he and other researchers are very familiar with. A majority of people that haven't benefited just find the apps not to be effective. They don't find them useful. Some people find them actually anxiety-provoking. They'll be on the subway and they're getting these alerts that say it's time to breathe mindfully and you're packed in this small space and the app is buzzing at you, telling you, take a moment, and you're going, my God, I'm trying to get off the train. So some people have found them anxiety-provoking. 
some people have just found that the apps are asking them to do things that are just odd. We'll say for that, like someone has clearly a good intentions and tried to design their own course of therapy, but it really didn't make sense. So there's one substance abuse app that had this strange, I think it was based on a 12 step model clearly, but it was asking people to contact people in their life and, and to say these things that really just didn't make sense. So again, I think someone had good intentions, made their own 12 steps app and really didn't think through what it was. Kleinrock says mHealth apps that focus on fitness run into similar problems too. If you're constantly on the digital scale, if you're constantly checking your steps, these can be a sort of a dopamine response, to put a medical term to it, where you get that sort of intense response to having checked your status. But that can go both ways. If you don't achieve the steps that you want for the day, you can become depressed about it. It can be validating and positive, but it can also sort of push people into frustration. And so those are concerns that if this is meant to be a medical intervention and there's no medical professional involved, we're all essentially amateur wellness experts now. Lewis says sometimes the apps end up being more distracting than beneficial, depending on how often a user is checking in with it. They become preoccupied and the app and its functionality can become the central focus of their life, at least for a while. And that's really not probably a good thing. The apps are there to provide background support, not to control your life on a day-by-day basis. But I've come across people who check those 40 or 50 times a day and will, a lot of the time will be taken up trying to achieve the goals, which are sort of relevant, but really one's well-being becomes affected if those goals become an end in themselves, if you like. So fulfilling the sort of goal criteria in the app is a sort of rather artificial substitute for real life in some ways. There are other concerns, too. Being able to collect and store massive amounts of data makes health apps convenient. But is it safe? The most important thing is to understand the safety and privacy of these apps. If the app is taking your patient's information about informed consent. Maybe the app is collecting geolocation on every step that your patient takes, and you don't realize that, and your patient doesn't. That's certainly a breach of trust, and that may be information that both you and the patient are not comfortable having shared. So I think what we ask people to do is we ask simple questions around, is there a privacy policy? And you'd be surprised how many of these apps that claim to be health-related don't even offer a privacy policy. They're not even having the decency to tell you what they're going to do with your data. Are they going to sell it? Are they going to remarket it? Are they going to trade it? Are they going to keep it? Who are they going to give it to? And often, asking that one question can eliminate some of the worst apps. Again, apps that just aren't respecting your privacy. M-Health is a young and unexplored territory, so there's no one true way of knowing how effective it is yet. But that doesn't mean the apps are likely totally useless. Apps are a technical development that has huge potential to package material for better mental health and well-being and fewer addictive behaviors. And where the state of the art is now from a research point of view is we're just beginning to find out what might be effective. So I think that the next five or 10 years, if we're still going to be using apps in another 10 years, is to sort of pinpoint the most important things 
put into such an app in order for it to be effective. And I think news travels very fast, and with time, people will become more aware of what's helpful and what's not helpful. Fisher says it's important for developers and medical professionals to collaborate to make sure these apps have accurate and useful information. As for consumers, Fisher says keep a few general tips in mind when browsing through the mHealth app store. I wouldn't just rely on an app store search and a click into an app, but I would also go online and start reading blogs and get a firm understanding of what health information you're looking for, what practical applications you would want to get from a digital health solution, and then get recommendations from uh, experts that would curate a short list of apps that would be applicable to you. If you already use mHealth apps, Berman says reflection is the key to making sure they positively benefit your life. First of all, suggest a test period where you kind of measure in the beginning how you're feeling and then a week or two later, depending on if you do feel that you can stay involved with the app more than one or two days, you measure, okay, how do I feel now? So you keep in mind, you don't just automatically use it, but Make sure that it's actually helping you rather than maybe you're remaining stable or you're maybe acquiring negative behaviors. You don't want that. So the first thing is really to self-evaluate. All of this means there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to mHealth. The technology may be new, but the precautions are still the same. Our smartphones are probably only as smart as we are. Our writer and producer this week is Reagan Houston. I'm Reed Pence. New research shows that healthy lifestyle choices may dramatically reduce the risk of dementia. Five studies presented at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference 2019 in Los Angeles show that lifestyle factors such as a healthy diet and exercise may even counteract genetic risks for dementia. Dr. Maria Carrillo is chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Association. While there is no proven cure or treatment for Alzheimer's, a large body of research now strongly suggests that combining healthy habits promotes good brain health and reduces your risk of cognitive decline. Along with a healthy diet and exercise, steps such as building a cognitive reserve through formal education and cognitively stimulating jobs also help provide maximum memory benefit. The new research suggests that adopting four or five healthy lifestyle factors rather than none or only one may reduce the risk of Alzheimer's dementia by nearly 60%. Find out more at ALZ.org. The summer season offers a chance to break from the routine, whether to try new activities, visit new places, or simply relax more. A shift in schedules can mean a shift in eating patterns and more reliance on snacking. That makes healthy choices all the more important. Registered dietitian Courtney Romano is a health advisor for the California Table Grape Commission. When it comes to summer snacking, fresh fruit is always a great choice. For a super grab-and-go snack, choose grapes. They travel well. Grapes are also healthy and hydrating, and always a crowd pleaser. Try freezing grapes for an all-natural frozen treat. They're like mini sorbets. Grapes from California are in season now. Grapes of all colors, red, green, and black, are a natural source of beneficial antioxidants and other polyphenols, which research suggests contribute to a healthy heart. Visit grapesfromcalifornia.com for more summer cool ideas. Electric scooters are fun, easy to use, and seemingly all over the streets. But several new studies find that e-scooters are also causing a growing number of serious injuries. 
One study by the CDC shows that 45% of those hurt have head injuries, while another 27% have broken arms, wrists, or hands. Half of those hurt say a pothole or a crack in the street caused their crash. Dr. Vidor Friedman is president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Emergency physicians are treating an increasing number of scooter-related injuries. Many of these are serious and can be life-changing, but many of these injuries are avoidable. The number one thing you can do to avoid serious injury is to wear a helmet. Scoot safe and avoid an emergency. Studies show that about a third of those hurt are first-time scooter riders. Dr. Friedman advises to start slowly, follow the rules of the road, and be an alert rider. More safety tips are online at emergencycareforyou.org slash scootsafe. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this broadcast, please support our show by subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and RadioHealthJournal.net. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. In fact, you are increasing levels of beta amyloid. That is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, even after one night of sleep deprivation. How not getting enough sleep is way worse for the body and mind than we ever suspected. Then a radical diet to reverse heart disease. Heart disease is nothing more than a toothless paper tiger that need never, ever exist. And if it does exist, it needs never, ever progress. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.